Uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 will be two different places in Scripture this morning. The, the first of those is Isaiah 9, 6. If you wanted to use one of the red Bibles in the seats, the text can be found on page 573, those Bibles underneath the seat in front of you, 573 in the red Bibles. Isaiah 9, verse 6, was written some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And yet it describes him with a stunning accuracy with these four throne names that have come to mark his ministry to us in every way. Uh, We covered the broader context a couple of weeks ago of Isaiah chapter 9, and so we won't look at all of the verses. Just look with a microscope here at chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born... To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We've had the opportunity over the last couple of weeks to see and savor Jesus as both Wonderful Counselor on the one hand, and then Mighty God was the next step. That was last week. Uh, This week we will come to know him as Everlasting Father. Because in the birth of the baby that we celebrate this Christmas, God gave us the gift of an Everlasting Father. In the birth of the baby that we celebrate this Christmas, God gave us the gift of an Everlasting Father. I would assume that as you think about and give uh, consideration to Isaiah 9, 6, that this is a verse that will scramble your tidy, uh, hermetically sealed Trinitarian categories. It should. In the Gospel of John, Jesus names the Holy Spirit as the Counselor. The Holy Spirit is the Counselor, according to Jesus. And yet here, plain as day, in Isaiah 9, 6... Christ himself is called a wonderful counselor. And it's also true that the first person of the Trinity is known as the Father, right? The Father. He's our Father in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray that way. Nevertheless, right here in Isaiah 9, 6, Christ, the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, is called himself Father. Isaiah calls him everlasting father. God the Son is himself an everlasting father. The Son is a father. That should sound strange to our ears. I hope it does a little bit. In Isaiah's day, a king would often present himself as a father. A father of his people. The father of his nation. When Isaiah's original Jewish audience heard this, that the Christ, the one that would be born from the line of David, would be known as a father, they would have had a category for that. That wouldn't have been confusing to them. He's a king, after all. He's a father. This is the way the kings thought of themselves. Kings were to provide for their nation, to guide their nation, to be generous to their nation, to bless their nation, to be firm with their nation to be tough and tender and affectionate and rugged and wise and give effective leadership to their nation. 
Kings were supposed to be fathers, good fathers. Not all of them were. And then there's the length of their reign. Um, or at least in this case, Christ, Israel's promised Messiah, is going to be, according to Isaiah 9, 6, a certain type of father, an everlasting father, father without a term limit. Hebrew word here for everlasting indicates a reign of perpetual duration, an endless succession of ages, one author I read said. This is the way that the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, talk about the reign of Jesus Christ. Uh, for example, in Hebrews 1.8, we read of King Jesus, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And that's actually a quotation from Psalm 45. In Revelation 1, 17 to 18, Jesus says to John on the Isle of Patmos, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever. And finally, the wonderful verse out of Hebrews 13, one of my favorite verses in Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is everlasting, Father. But it's this idea of Jesus as Father that we want to drill down on this morning together as a congregation. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn one more place, and that's Mark chapter 6, verse 30. And that's where we'll be for the remainder of our time today. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30. It begins on page 841 in the Red Bibles. 841 in the Red Bibles. Mark 6, 30. I'll read through verse 44. And then we'll also take a look at Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. And you will see why in very short order. So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. Jesus has just sent out the 12 apostles to minister, and they've come back with tales from the mission field. And we read in verse 30, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. And he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? He said, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found it out, they said, five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven. And he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men.
Now, Jesus is going to walk on water. He's going to heal some sick. He's going to light up the Pharisees. He'll talk about uh, his heart for the nations, heal a deaf man. And then chapter 8, verse 1. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from far away. And Jesus' disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the crowd and to set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Hmm. Okay. Mark 6, verse 30. Jesus' disciples have just returned from an exhilarating time of kingdom ministry. These guys are pumped. And they're, they've been proclaiming repentance in Jesus' name. That's the gospel at this point. Turn away from your sins. The kingdom of God is, is here. Jesus sends them out to say that. They are casting out demons. They're healing sick people. And they return, it says in chapter 6, verse 30, to tell them all that they've done and taught. It reminds me of my daughter coming home from preschool. Let me tell you about the day today. What happened today? What would you do? And it's at this point that Jesus recommends a, a respite, a breather from the ministry, a time to regroup and recharge and renew themselves. They've been going at a pretty good clip, and they need to rest. Verse 31 says something that hardly any American knows anything about. They had no leisure even to eat. Good fathers... Do this. Good fathers size up the situation that those who depend on them are in, consider the needs, and provide for them. In this case, it's a brief vacation. So Jesus, like a good dad, says, You know what? Drop what you're doing. Get in the family roadster. We're going on a journey. Let's go. Everyone goes with him. Each of the disciples go with him. They're going to take a break. But notice what happens in verses 32 and 33. Verses 32 and 33 tell us that this huge throng of people see them get into the boat, and they decide to head them off and meet them at the shore before they get there. People on feet evidently are going to be quicker than a group of guys in a boat. They beat them to the location. There's no other word for this. This is rude. This is rude. This is, a, this is a minister's family packing up the SUV, and a bunch of people come, and right before it leaves the driveway, they say, can we have some time here? Everyone knows the vacation's been planned, right? This is annoying. Seriously. Annoying. 
These guys are spent from ministry. Jesus knows it. And they are about to be happily cutting loose, just unstring the bow and relax a little bit. They've been casting out demons for crying out loud. Let's have a little R&R here. Jesus' response is extraordinary. It's remarkable, really. Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, Wikipedia defines personal boundaries with the following definition. Personal boundaries are guidelines, rules, limits that a person creates to identify for him what are reasonable, safe, and permissive ways for other people to behave around him and how he will respond when someone steps outside those limits. Boundaries are important, of course. They have their place in life and ministry. They guard our souls. They guard our spouses and our kids and our families. They help us to prioritize and get first things first. I'm not down on boundaries, nor is the Bible. Biblical boundaries, that is. I'm not minimizing the proper biblical use of relational limits. But let's be honest here. Most people would look at the decision that Jesus makes here in verse 34 and question it. Most people, at least most people in our culture, would look at Jesus' decision-making here and chalk it up to a significant, if not a total collapse of relational boundaries. They're supposed to be taking a break. Some might even say Jesus' ministry here is driven by an unhealthy and harmful narcissism. It's funny. Mark has an alternative explanation. He calls it compassion. Compassion for lost, harassed, and helpless sinners. In Mark 8, 2 and 3, Jesus' words are even more arresting. He can't help himself. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. Jesus had serious boundary issues. You know why? Because his compassion knew no bounds. None. Philippians 2, 6 to 8 says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only does Jesus elect to teach this crowd of people, he wants to see them fed. He's, he's a good dad. They're hungry. And though his disciples point out to him in Mark 6.37 that, you know, Jesus, did you ever stop to consider that enough food to cover this people would be 200 denarii? And that's, that's equivalent to two-thirds of the year's salary of a day laborer in the first century. Can you swing that, Jesus? You know how much this is going to cost? Jesus is unsentimental in his response. 
you give them something to eat. Mark 6.37. There's a good dad again. He's pressing on them. Give them something to eat. Psalm 78.19 asks the rhetorical question, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. The answer in Mark 6 and 8 is an emphatic yes. We have the miracle story. Uh, Mark 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men. The text is explicit, men. That means not even counting women and children, which there surely were with the men that day. And then Mark 8 says Jesus feeds 4,000 people. People, which leads me to think that might be the sum total number. It's not the word for men. So Jesus provides for his disciples and for all who are willing to learn at his feet. It's just, it's an example. It's one example of the fatherly care of Jesus. And we could unfold and multiply the fatherly concern of Jesus all the way through his ministry. He was a good father. He's the everlasting father. Now, the question for application to each of us is this Advent season. Do you receive Jesus as your everlasting father? Do you receive Jesus as your everlasting Father? Do you have the heart of Jesus? Another way to ask this question is, is your heart hardened or healthy? Is your heart hardened or healthy? I say hardened because of Mark 6.52. Look with me at Mark 6.52. Notice what Mark says. They did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened. Or later on in Mark 8, verses 14 to 21, the disciples, the disciples are, throughout Mark's gospel, presented in less than flattering terms. Can we agree on that? He is not in a hurry to cast these guys in the best light possible. It's one of the reasons I trust the Gospels. I trust Mark implicitly as a reporter of the facts here. Their discipleship on this point is just incompetent boobery. Jesus has just miraculously fed over 10,000 people. He did it on two different occasions. And yet we read in Mark 8, verses 14 and following. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. Seriously. And one, they had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the loaves, the five loaves, for the 5,000, how many baskets did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you break up? They said to him, seven. He said to them, do you not yet understand? These baskets, by the way, you know the story of Paul being lowered through a window in the book of Acts in a basket? That's this basket. Big enough for the apostle Paul to fit in. That's a lot of bread. 
And they didn't even use that part. That was the gratuitous part of the miracle. Do you receive Jesus as your everlasting father? The, the apostles saw him feed thousands. They saw him feed thousands. I've seen preachers try to reconcile Mark 6 and Mark 8 and just sort of take the edge off in Mark 8, and it doesn't work. They forgot. They watched him feed thousands of people, and yet they do not receive him as everlasting father. Not at this point. Their hearts were hardened toward him. How's yours? How is your heart toward Jesus? Is it hardened or healthy? As we seek to land the plane today, I'm going to offer three applications for us. Three heart checks to see if Jesus is your everlasting father. Number one, do you receive Jesus' invitation to rest as a part of the regular rhythm of your discipleship? You receive Jesus' invitation to rest. I will grant that we are not, most of us, healing sick people and casting out demons. But many of you recognize the daily crush of ministry responsibilities, especially in a small church. It just rides on all of our shoulders all the time. I was talking with one of our staff members about that this week. It's a lot of weight for just a little group of people. Maybe you meet weekly with a community group. Maybe you even lead one or provide the home for one. Maybe you serve in Sunday morning ministry in here in some capacity. It could be children's ministry. Perhaps it's our assimilation ministry or hospitality ministry. Perhaps you're on the music team, which means you're already practicing Thursday night and Sunday morning. Maybe your area of service takes part mainly outside of the Sunday morning meeting. You're a part of the compassion team or you serve as an elder or different ways that uh, you spend your time serving Jesus here. No matter what type of service you invest in here within this congregation, we all have something in common. We are all people with limited resources, and we are participating in a ministry that will heavily tax those limited resources. We get tired. Sometimes we call it burnout. We all have that in common. To be and make disciples of Jesus Christ is to engage in the most significant activity in the planet. This is the big leagues. We're not making widgets here. We're making disciples. This is huge. Heaven and hell ride on what we do. Deed ministry, word ministry, doesn't matter. We're all involved in this. These are serious and weighty endeavors that require every fiber of muscle to do it well. Jesus knows this. He knows it better than we do. And so he calls us. He calls to us the same as the disciples. He says, come away. Come away with me by yourselves for a little while to a desolate place. One of my favorite pastors once wrote, Ministry is its own worst enemy. It is not destroyed by the big bad wolf of the world. It destroys itself. The great threat to our prayer and meditation on the word of God is good ministry activity. Yes, it is. Do you receive Jesus as your everlasting father? Do you receive his invitation to rest as a part of the regular rhythm of your discipleship? Do you read the Bible? Do you? Daily. 
Do you live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? If you make the Bible your breakfast, I guarantee you will have something to give hungry people throughout the rest of the day. You will have food people know nothing about. People will suggest that you go and eat, and you go, oh, it hadn't occurred to me. I've been eating today already. Yeah, I suppose I should fuel up the tank a little bit, get something to eat. And if you need practical help getting started or restarted, help is on the way. Uh, In just a couple of weeks, we're going to be offering an eight-week class. We've never done something like this before in this church, and the class is going to be called How to Walk with God. We'll do it through our Mound Free You ministry, How to Walk with God. We'll cover topics like reading your Bible, praying, what this mystical thing called meditation is all about, Uh, what journaling might look like for you, or fasting as a way of life, what it looks like to have private and family worship, which is a rhythm that we ought to be in in our homes. I invite you to come. Also, in 2013, we're going to be adding a new feature to our church's website. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and I think I'm going to pull the trigger on it. Um, We're going to start a daily prayer blog that will be located at moundfree.org. And through the course of 2013, there will be uh, a reading, a daily reading, roughly three chapters a day for those who are interested in, in doing the reading. And there will be a prayer based on that reading. Once every 24 hours, it'll be updated. And we'll make our way from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Revelation 22, verse 20, by December 31st of 2013, Lord willing. And you can check in there, and you can do your daily devotions. I invite you to take that opportunity as well. Do you receive Jesus as your everlasting Father? Do you receive his invitation to rest as a part of the regular rhythm of your life? Second heart check. Does the compassion of Christ bear even the faintest family resemblance in your own life? Does the compassion of Christ bear even the faintest family resemblance in your own life? Um, Sort of hinted toward this before, but our evangelical culture is is a very strange one. We talk a very big game about mercy and compassion ministry. And then we uncritically adopt rules regarding relational boundaries that sometimes destroy the possibility of that kind of outreach. Did Jesus ever promise us four quiet nights with the family at home every week? Really? Does the fatherly compassion of Jesus ever bear resemblance in your life? Enough to create sympathy for the needs of others. Enough to wreck your plans and your schedule. The Great Commission and Mercy Ministry in particular are never convenient. Never. Just count on it. We're typically happy to help people just so long as it doesn't take too much time. We're glad to reach out. Would you prefer that it's just not messy? Sometimes we think that family time can be threatened by a radical commitment to ministry. And I want to admit that I think it can. It is certainly possible. Jesus was able to do more than most people, not because he was God, but because he was single. I believe that, and I believe that's true of the Apostle Paul as well. I believe that they loaded up their calendars in a way that families, married couples, 
uh, will struggle to. Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians 7. But Paul also said that Peter and others took along a believing wife on the journey with them, 1 Corinthians 9. They did ministry as a family. So, do the Great Commission. Let your heart be broken wide open for lost and needy and wayward people and do it as a family. Do it with your spouse. Do it with your kids. Use your home for hospitality. What better way than by ministering side by side together in the kingdom? Does the compassion of Christ bear even the faintest family resemblance in your own life? Your kids will remember this. Of course, if you throw them in front of the bus of ministry, they'll remember that too. But how many of you grew up in homes where mom and dad did hospitality for missionaries or regularly had people over in the home? It made an impact. It made a very big impact. You felt special that you got to do ministry. Lastly, do you depend upon Jesus' resources to minister to others, or do you solely depend upon your own? Do you receive everlasting, Jesus' everlasting Father? Well, do you depend on his resources or just your own? When you conceive of serving Jesus, conceive of serving Jesus in the context of the local church or in your family or in your neighborhood, ask yourself this question. Could I just as easily do what I'm doing here without prayer? Seriously. Could you just as easily do what you're doing right now in Jesus' name without Jesus' help? Before Jesus helped the disciples feed 5,000 men, the disciples had five loaves and two fish. Based on their resources, they probably said, "Eh, we probably have resources for three or four people here. But they failed to calculate that five loaves and two fish plus Jesus is more than enough to feed any number of people. We can look around at our assets and they seem to be modest. And then we plan out a modest contribution based on the modest assets. Which is fine, except for that you don't need God for that kind of budget. There's no room for God in that kind of budget. The thing about Jesus is that he is restless. He has a restless vision for expansive ministry. He pressed the disciples in Mark 6.37. You give them something to eat. And then in Mark 8.5, he made them take stock of their assets. He said, how many loaves do you have? So they have the command to feed thousands of people, and he reminds them that they don't actually have enough in their possession to do it. And then they look to him for help. Jesus is always in the business of moving us toward impossible ministry situations. Impossible, that is, without his involvement. But with his involvement, thousands of hungry people can be fed. These are good days to be a part of Mount Evangelical Free Church. I believe that. These are great days to be a part of this fellowship. Look at this building. We used to have five loaves and two fish. Our assets have increased. They have. You've heard me say it before. There are 25,000 people within a 15-minute drive of this facility the majority of whom are harassed and helpless. 
like sheep without a shepherd. And we have a golden opportunity here because we know the good shepherd. We can give them something to eat. Do you depend upon Jesus' resources to minister or do you depend solely upon your own? So in the birth of the baby we celebrate this Christmas, God gave us the gift of an everlasting father. Do you receive him as your everlasting father? Do you have the heart of Jesus? Is your heart hardened or is it healthy? Receive his rest. By his grace, with his help, cultivate his compassion. And remember that without Jesus, you can do nothing. But through Christ, you can do all things. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, everlasting Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we bow before you, triune God, and we thank you for this amazing picture of the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. I pray first that you would simply give us, cut, cut fresh grooves in our minds about the fact, Jesus, that you are Father. You are everlasting Father. Above all things, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you took up responsibility as the God-man to live a perfect life and die on the cross for us. You gave up your life so that we might have your life. And as many of us have your life this morning, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would set our eyes on eternal things. I pray that we would be people who don't feel guilty about resting, but that we would rest wonderfully, lavishly in the gospel every day. Every day that we would take time away with you. Every week that we would rest from our work and renew our souls. Lord, I pray that would be the rhythm of our lives unapologetically. And then I pray, Lord, that we would cultivate your compassion and that we would just see that sometimes ministry is expensive. Sometimes it wrecks our plans. And I pray that we just wouldn't have a sense that we've ever sacrificed anything but that we get to be a part of this ministry, Lord. Help our hearts to break wide open for lost people and for found people that need to grow. And Lord Jesus Christ, may we be optimistic about what you might want to do with our five loaves and two fishes. We thank you for all of our resources. Most importantly, we thank you for each of the people in our congregation. We thank you for this building we've been given. May we use it full tilt for the glory of God and the ingathering of your sheep. In the mighty name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.